I'm going to have you turn your Bible to the book of Ezra chapter 7. And we're going to look at a passage of scripture in the book of Ezra that I heard when I was, Robert, at your stage in life. I'll never forget sitting and listening to a man open up this passage and being struck by the simplicity of this passage, but also by its power. And I have come back to this passage over and over and over again in my ministry. This passage uh, is, is certainly a passage that encourages us in the work of the ministry to which you are being ordained, but it also instructs us in that ministry. And so while I direct my comments directly to you this morning, in, in many ways those comments really are for all of us. If you look at Ezra chapter 7 and you begin reading in verse 1 and you go all the way down through the beginning of verse 6, you encounter something very unusual. This is the introduction to an individual. And the introduction to Ezra is unusual because he's introduced with a genealogy. And the genealogy is unusual because of its location in the book. Normally, when you are introduced to somebody or when there's a a, a genealogy, normally that genealogy comes at the very front end of the book. But here, this one comes in the middle of the book. So it is unusual because of its location. It's also unusual because of its length. This is one of the more lengthy genealogies of an individual. There are some longer genealogies that you can read, for example, in Genesis 5. And in the opening chapters of the book of uh, Chronicles, there's a very lengthy genealogy of the nation. But when it comes to introducing you to a particular individual, this is a very, very unusual genealogy because of its length. There are 16 generations that are represented in these verses. And it's unusual because of its origin. When you go all the way back to the very beginning of Ezra's roots, you find out that he is coming from the line of Aaron, the chief priest of Israel. So whoever this individual is, whoever Ezra is, he is being introduced to us as someone of great importance. The name Ezra comes from a Hebrew name that means the Lord has helped And by the time you get done understanding who Ezra is and what God did through this man, it is absolutely stunning. This individual was used by the Lord to return God's people to the city of God. He was used in the providence of God in the rebuilding of the house of God. And probably his greatest contribution was in the restoration of the worship of God to the people of God that had been lost in, in, in large part because of the Babylonian captivity from which they were returning. If you read the rabbinical uh, language or you study uh, what rabbis have to say about Ezra, other than David and Moses, there is no greater personality in all of Jewish history than Ezra. And so what can we learn from this man's life? What can we learn from his example? And Robert, what can you and I as preachers of the word learn from his ministry? I would suggest to you that as Ezra did great things 
for the Lord. And you and I and all of God's people aspire to serve the Lord in a very useful way with our lives. All that Ezra accomplished was done with the Lord's help because the Lord's good hand was on his life. And I would say that all of us, no matter whether we preach the word or we live out that word in our life or we serve the Lord in some vocation uh, or we have a platform that God gives to us, we all will accomplish for God what we accomplish for God only if God's hand is on our life. It is only when the work of our hand becomes the work of God's hand that anything of lasting value is ever done. And so how can we see in this passage of Scripture what God did through Ezra's life? And so I I want to show you three very simple things out of this text, and then I want to pray for you. And I, I think all of the people gathered here today love you and appreciate you. And Audrey, we love you and appreciate you. We're so grateful for the ministry that you've had in all of our lives. Um, I had the very wonderful privilege of reading a sermon that you sent me out of Psalm 121. And that sermon has stood me in very good stead over the last number of weeks. And uh, I have benefited from your ministry in the Word as your dad, and I know others have as well. And so what can you and I and all the people of God learn about God's good hand on our life from the life of Ezra? And so I want to begin very quickly with the first major idea that I want to draw to all of our attention, and that is this. There is a ministry objective to our life. There is a ministry objective to our life. And in your case, the ministry objective is to teach God's word to God's people. You can see that in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 in the passage that we're looking at. Notice uh, how this text unfolds. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Egypt. I'm sorry, in Israel. Not Egypt, Israel. You're being sent to Egypt, but you're to teach God's statutes and God's word to God's people. And so that's the ministry objective of all of our lives, that we would so understand God's word that it would flow out of our life so that it can be publicly experienced by those around us. And and so for that, God sets apart individuals to do that teaching. And you can see that in verse 6, Ezra was described as a skilled scribe. You see this in verse 6. This Ezra, the one we just met from this incredible genealogy, went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. That, that idea of being a skilled scribe in the law of Moses simply meant this. He was a student of the scripture. He was a student of the word. And then he was a compelling communicator, a compelling teacher of the Scripture. And he was an authoritative spokesman of that word. And he was recognized as such. Look at verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings. I mean, here is the highest individual in the world of Ezra's day. And Ezra had come to his notice. And the thing that... This king knew about Ezra was that he was a skilled scribe in the law of God of heaven. He had come 
to the notice of the king. You can see it again in verse 25. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. He had come to the notice of the king. He wasn't just a skilled scribe in the word of God. He was recognized as such, and he was given the opportunity and the responsibility at an unexpected but very critical time to do so. And so will you. God has an appointed place. He has an appointed task, and he has an appointed season for every one of his servants. Sometimes he will take a servant for a period of time and put him in a place Because there are people there that are desperately in need of the word that you have studied and that you have loved and that you have learned that that God has gifted your hand to to teach and to communicate. And sometimes you're going to communicate it through your words, but more often you're going to communicate it through your life. There's an appointed season, there's an appointed place, and there's an appointed task. Some people go somewhere and spend 50 years there. More often than not, God is going to take his servants like he did in the New Testament. Almost every time you read of one of God's servants in the New Testament, they are there in a particular place for a particular season, and then God moves them. However it works out for you, the task never changes. There is a ministry objective, and that ministry objective is to teach God's word to God's people. Now, in order to do that well, there is an indispensable component. There is an indispensable component, and that indispensable component is divine enablement. Unless the God of the Word stands behind you as you preach the Word, and you teach the Word, and you live the Word, nothing of eternal value will happen. You can see this divine enablement throughout the chapter. Notice it in verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted all that he asked. I mean, here is a pagan king. Here is a scribe in the law of Moses. And all of a sudden, this king who stands at the top of the political structure in the world of Ezra's day, says to Ezra, whatever you want, whatever you need, I will give. And and I want to know how in the world did that happen? And the text answers the question, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. You see it again at the end of verse 9, for the good hand of his God was on him. And you see it again in verse 28 when Ezra lifts his voice as he receives this incredible commission and this incredible opportunity and these incredible provisions from King Artaxerxes. He said, I took courage in verse 28. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. I think the most significant thing that any of us could learn from this text and any of us could take away from the life of Ezra whether we stand behind a pulpit and preach the word of God week by week or we stand 
behind a desk or sit behind a desk and do accounting or maybe we enter into a medical community and do ministry there as a nurse or a doctor. The the greatest thing we could ever learn as believers is there is an indispensable component to doing the ministry of the word wherever that ministry is. And that indispensable component is this. God's good hand needs to be on our life. And that's true whether you're trying to raise your family. That's true whether you're trying to navigate a marriage. That's true whether you're trying to do some endeavor for the Lord. Whatever it is that you're trying to do that has any ministry value will only happen successfully when the hand of God is upon you. My prayer for you and my prayer for all of us, my prayer for myself, is that the work of our hand would be the work of his hand and that his hand would be the wor- the one guiding our little hand that his strength would be the one supplying all of our little effort and all of our human strength so that at the end of the day whatever gets done that has any lasting value we would only know that it was because of God that this was really God at work and we were just the human instrument You know, it's so clear in this text when you start reading this book, by the time you get to the end of this book, stunning things have happened. Amazing things have happened. Things that that on a human level should never have happened. Think about things in your life that are so big and so stunning that unless God does them, there is absolutely no hope that, that they will ever get done. Maybe some of you are here and you're looking at your family and over the time that you've been uh, married and over the time you've had a family, there are things that have gone on and you're looking at a family and you realize that, that there is something so big that has to happen that if God doesn't do it, it isn't going to happen. Or maybe it's your marriage. Or maybe you're facing a situation at work And you begin to realize, God, I can't do anything to fix this. There's nothing I can do. And you look at that situation, and from a human perspective, it is absolutely beyond your ability to even make an impact or an influence. And you realize the outcome of whatever you're staring at is not good And you need God. And a year later, you look back and something so stunning has happened. And you realize, I I didn't do that. This thing that happened at work that totally reversed the thing I was concerned about, I, I didn't do that. This restoration that happened in my family, I didn't do that. This this sweetness in our marriage that wasn't here a year ago, I didn't do that. And somebody comes to you and says, how did that happen? And you just hold your hand up and you say, I'm not sure I know. But here's what I do know. God. God. That's what it means to have God's good hand on your life. And so that brings me to the third thing. How do I get that? How do I get God's good hand on my life? How do I get it on my ministry? 
How do I get it as I, I come and shepherd God's people? Robert, you're going to find yourself, if the Lord gives you years of service for the Lord, you're going to find yourself in ministry, and you're going to walk into ministry one day, and you're going to say, I don't know what to do. And beyond ministry, it's going to be in the life of people. There are going to be people who come to you and they come in desperate desire for God to do something in their life. They really want God to do something in their life. And they pour out their heart to you and you nod your head wisely and you say, well, I'm going to pray about this and let me talk to Audrey. I'm I'm kidding about the last part. And you're going to walk out of that room and you're going to say, God, I have no idea what to tell these people. I have no idea what to say. You're going to be sitting in front of a text and you have Sunday morning coming. And you know that there are desperate people sitting out there who came not because they had to, but they are coming because they are hungry. And they are desperate to hear from God. And that text is like a brick wall. Man, you pound at it. You pull all your commentaries off the shelf. You analyze it and you try to figure out some some outline and every word starts with the same letter and you can't get there. And you get on your hands and your knees before the Lord and you say, God, I need your good hand on this. And God does it. And he does it to people who have met certain essential requirements. There are certain essential things in this text that Ezra lays out for us, and these certainly are not guarantees. It's not like we do these things to manipulate God into blessing us, but this is the kind of person upon whom God's hand rests. Whether whether you're a pastor or whether you're a ministry leader or a Sunday school teacher or a deacon or a greeter, it doesn't matter what you do in the house of God or maybe you're a person who's got some ministry outside of the church. What kind of person is the kind of person that God puts his hand on? And I want, I want you to see in verse 10, this kind of a person is a person who has determined to develop in his life an unshakable life orientation. There's an unshakable life orientation. Look at verse 10. Ezra set his heart. He firmly fixed. He established a resolute determination. Something went on in Ezra's heart at some point in his life, and he said it doesn't matter what comes, it doesn't matter where it comes, it doesn't matter how it comes, but I have made a determination. There is an unshakable life orientation. And that life orientation is an undistracted life objective. So what is it that Ezra set his heart to do in this undistracted way? He set his heart to study the law of the Lord. And Robert, more than anything else you could do with your life, it's the same thing that everybody else here could do with their life. This is not a pastoral thing, although pastors need to do it. This is a believer thing. And that is this, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord. To get down to the root of what God said. 
to find out what God meant when he said something, to figure out how God looked at life. And and so Ezra set himself to look at God's word and to dig down into the roots. One of the greatest questions I've ever heard in my life, I heard it as a student preparing uh, in ministry, and I remember my professor saying this, and it has stuck with me my entire life. And the question was simply this. He said, you don't, well, he told all of us, you don't want to get to heaven and stand before God as a preacher of his word and have God ask you this question. Why did you tell my people I said that? Why did you tell my people I said that? I didn't say that. And I wrote it down, and I told you to study, to show yourself approved, working hard to rightly divide the Word of God. And that is not a pastoral objective. That is a believer objective. All of us have that same objective. An inward, unshakable resolution to give ourselves in an undistracted way to understand the Word of God. And God has given to you in this assembly, and I know this because I was a member here for many, many years. God has given to you an unusual gift in the fact that there are many opportunities for you as a congregation to sit under the teaching and preaching of God's Word in an accurate way where God's servants are digging down to the root of what God has said and they are bringing to you what God meant by what is said and not what they wish he had meant or not what they have an opinion what God actually said but all of that has to be followed up by the final thing there has to be an unshakable life orientation there has to be an undistracted life objective but all of that has to lead to an unquestionable life commitment Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to teach statutes and rules in in Israel. But in between that is this little line, and to do it. Ezra set his heart to study, to do, and to teach. You know, Psalm 19 explains why God's word is so powerful. It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlivens and enlightens the eyes. It purifies and cleanses the soul. It guides. It warns. It satisfies. But it only does that when we personally and consistently apply it to our lives. We are only useful to God when God's hand is on our life. And it doesn't matter if I'm a pastor. I can take that same principle and put it to work in my marriage as a husband. I can put it to work in my family as a dad. I can put it to work in my vocation. I can put it to work in all of my relationships. My life will only have impact for God when the Word of God is impacting me. And the Word of God will never impact me if I don't know the Word of God. The Word of God will never impact me if there is not a regular uh, input of that Word in my life. I, I will never be able to live the Word of God out if the Word of God is not coming into my life regularly. And I'm not doing what Ezra did, where I'm sitting down with the Word of God and I'm listening to the explanation that 
qualified men and spiritual leaders in my life and teachers are, are, are laying out that word for me. I'm never going to do it if I'm not in that word myself. And I will never live out the word of God if the word of God is not gripping my heart. And so my question to you as a congregation and my question to myself, Robert, and my question to you is this. Has the word of God gripped your heart? You and I and and men who are called to preach the word of God are not going to help the church by giving them our opinions, however wonderful those opinions might be in our own minds. We're not called to stand up and tell a bunch of stories to entertain people. We're not called to stand up and offer our interpretations and our viewpoints and our particular ideas about things. We are called to stand before God's people and teach God's word to them. And it is God's word that will change them because that's the same word that's changing us. It's the same word that changes you. It's the same word that changes me. And it's the same word that changes every single person in this room. When somebody walks out of a sermon or walks out the back doors of a church and God's word has changed something in them, it wasn't the preacher that did it. It wasn't the preacher that did it. Any work that gets done in my life or your life or any life is because the good hand of God took the good word of God and put it to good use in the heart of the people of God. So, Robert, my prayer for you is that God would give you grace and strength for this kind of a ministry. A ministry mentor many, many years ago said something to me I've never forgotten. He said this, education makes you hireable. And you have education. You're finishing your MDiv and your mom and I are so proud of the hard work you've done. Education may make you hireable, but it doesn't make you useful. There's only one thing that makes you useful in the work of God, and that is a humble, gracious, joyful submission to God. When the hand of God is on your life, whether you have education or not, God's hand is what gives the power to ministry. Education makes you hireable, but broken, humble submission to God is what makes you usable. May the Lord do that. I'd like to pray a prayer for you, Robert, and this prayer is uh, a prayer that was prayed on February the 6th, 1812, by somebody named Samuel, my name, on the day that Adoniram Judson was ordained. And I read this prayer and I thought, this is a prayer that I want for myself. And I've prayed this prayer privately for my own life and I want to pray it for you. And I'd like all of you to join me. The words are going to be on the screen and and, uh, let me ask you to pray them along with me if you don't mind. Lord, we are so grateful that we could come and look at a text like this and be impacted by the life of an ancient servant like Ezra, who you strengthened to do a great ministry in the word for your glory and for your people. And today we're setting aside Robert and his dear wife to this ministry of the word. And so by the solemnities of this day, 
Robert is being publicly set aside for the service of God and the gospel of his son among the heathen. And Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, there are so many people who need to know who you are and what you're like. And the gospel isn't just for people who don't know you. Sometimes the gospel is for people who know you. And as we set Robert apart to the service of the gospel of your son, I pray that you would bless him. Lord, may you help Robert to carry to the poor heathen the good news of pardon, peace, and eternal life. Lord, we ask that you would tell them of the God who we love and adore, of the Savior in whom we trust, of the glorious eternal life for which we hope. Lord, we are not insensible to the sacrifices which Robert will make and which Audrey will make or to the dangers and the sufferings to which you have devoted them. Robert stands before you this day and you have said in your word that he will be a spectacle to God and to angels and to men. He is in the act of leaving parents and friends and country. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be to him an awesome counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a leader, a prince who brings peace. Lord, would you you take our dear Robert and would you help us to keep him in the tenderness remembrance so that we would never stop praying for him would you help him to be of good courage and to go in peace and may you the god of the holy apostles and the prophets go with him lord we commend him to you and to the word of your grace and we pray that in the day of the lord jesus we would have the happiness to see him present many others before the throne of his glory with exceeding joy. And we pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, who commissions us to live out the word and who is setting apart Robert this day to the work of his ministry. And we thank you for that. 